Uh, last May, Rachel and I enjoyed a trip to Colorado. Uh, the mountains were majestic. It was my first time to see them. Uh, one morning, we hiked a short path up the side of a mountain, and at the top of the trail, there was a, there's a, a gorgeous waterfall. Uh, the snow melt and the rains just had it gushing over the edge, really stunning, uh, truly amazed by the grandeur of God's creation. Uh, the only negative is that we eventually had to descend the mountain, right? We had, we had to come back down and then drive through West Texas. <laughs> the second half of Lamentations is, is like descending a mountain. And at the top of the mountain is, is a robust revelation of God's steadfast love. His, his mercies are, are never-ending. They're new every morning. But now our descent must begin. As you might expect, that also means revisiting the same darkness we saw climbing up the mountain. Chapters 1 and 2 describe the dark horrors of God's wrath. Chapters 4 and 5 will describe more of that same darkness. And the second half of chapter 3, it starts moving us in that direction, back towards the darkness. And that structure is deliberate. Okay? It matches their reality. Right? God's steadfast love, it never ceases. Yes and amen. But that doesn't mean the darkness lifted for them immediately. The darkness lingers. Right? They, we never forget the waterfall of God's love toward the top, but the question becomes, how do we hold on to that vision when the darkness still greets us in the morning? When sitting in darkness, God's people need help knowing how to wait for mercy's fullness. Israel needed the help, and we need the help. And the rest of chapter 3 is that help. You see, this man knows the darkness lingers as he descends this mountain of lament. But it's as, if, it's as if he takes the people's hand, it's as if he takes Zion's hand at this point, and he teaches her how to process the darkness in light of God's unwavering character. And he walks with her down the mountain saying, this is how you wait, beloved. The exile is awful. The curses are dark. But God's mercies never end. God rules over everything. He is just in all His dealings. And that knowledge of God's character then teaches us how to act. How to wait. I want to draw out four ways that God's people should respond in the darkness while they wait for His mercies. But I also want to be very clear. These these responses don't leave behind that great vision of God's steadfast love that we saw in verses 22 to 24. They grow out of it. And so as we move through these four ways to respond, I want to keep the connections to God's steadfast love close by, especially as those connections play out for us under the new covenant in Jesus all four, all four points here are your application. So we're not going to get to the end of the sermon and be expecting 
Okay, what is your application? The whole thing is your application. Okay? So this is really part B to last week's message, the first half of chapter 3. So here we go with the first way God's people should respond when darkness lingers. Embrace the Lord's justice in and His sovereignty over your circumstances. Embrace the Lord's justice in and His sovereignty over your circumstances. Okay, in verses 34 to 36, we find God's justice. Let's read it together. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Or perhaps your translation ends with a rhetorical question. Does not the Lord see? And the answer is yes, of course he sees all the injustice. So here's the situation. Babylon has been utterly ruthless to the people of God. You know, they didn't walk into Jerusalem and say, we're here on God's behalf. We've been sent by him to be used as his instruments to humble you. If you would all please make your exit out the back door. No, Babylon acted of their own accord. They carried out God's will, yes, but they did so unknowingly. They themselves were driven by their own pride and their lust for power. They show no mercy. They starve the people for 18 months. They enslave the survivors. They put yokes on the elderly people that, are, that, were, that were exceedingly heavy. They raped the women. These people were utterly ruthless and unjust. Now, if you were experiencing this and you knew that God stood behind the event and you knew God sent Babylon such that earlier in the book Babylon's arrows are God's arrows, wouldn't you begin to ask God some questions? I mean, the man doesn't question whether Israel deserved the punishment. They did. He makes that clear. What could easily be questioned, though, is why God allows the nations to prosper in their injustice. I mean, sit long enough under Babylon's cruelty and, and the questions start shifting from how is Babylon so cruel to how is God not doing anything here? Where are you, Lord, when the women and the children are treated this way? Don't you see us? Don't you see me? But the man's point is that God does see the injustice. God does not approve the injustice. And that's something to hold on to in the darkness. No matter how bad this darkness gets, in other words, God won't compromise His justice. He sees and He will act. At the same time, Zion must also embrace God's sovereignty over the circumstances. Uh, look at verse 37 now. Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Or your translation might have evils 
or calamities? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? In other words, everything happens under the Lord's sovereign decree. The language in verse 37 is the same we find at Genesis chapter 1. God commands and creation comes into existence. And so also here with the judgments that had fallen on Jerusalem. Babylon came because God said so. Now, in case you're wondering, yes, this means that God's judgments sometimes operate through the sinful acts of human agents. And those human agents remain morally accountable for their wickedness. Isaiah 10 is another uh, good example. It says that God had wielded Assyria like an axe in his hand. And yet the rest of Isaiah turns around and condemns Assyria for the way they acted. And the same is true here with Babylon. Babylon is accountable. God is just. Even though God uses their wickedness to execute His judgment on Jerusalem, God is sovereign. Now, this doesn't mean God stands behind the bad in the same way He stands behind the good. Psalm 5.4, He's not a God who delights in wickedness. Uh, James 1.13, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. Or, or even here in verse 33, God does not afflict the children of man from His heart. Nevertheless, the Bible is also clear that God wills to permit the evil acts of men. And God guides those evil acts to achieve His purposes. In this case, Babylon's evil achieves God's purpose in judgment. And finally, we also know from Scripture that God will bring those evil acts toward a good end, like the vindication of His justice and even the repentance of His people. Which is where He heads next. Their repentance. But before going there, let's chew on these truths a bit more. If there was ever a time when when God's justice and God's sovereignty was displayed most clearly, uh, it is in the cross of Christ. God planned the cross of Christ down to the way that Judas would dip the morsel of bread into the cup before before betraying Jesus. His word in the Old Testament laid out every detail. Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews, they did exactly what God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 28. Once again, there at the cross, we see that God used the sinful acts of the nations to execute His judgment against Israel. Only with Jesus, the judgment fell on an innocent Israelite. How do we know Jesus was innocent? Because God raised him from the dead. He vindicated his righteousness. Why did Jesus suffer God's judgment then? Well, because that's what our sins deserved. And that's where the cross also teaches us about God's justice. 
in order to uphold his righteous character and also to save us, God had to punish our sins, and he did so in Jesus. At the cross, God's steadfast love provided what God's justice required. So whether it's here in Lamentations or at the cross, God reveals to us that he is sovereign over the darkness and he is just in the darkness. Dark circumstances will sometimes tempt you to believe otherwise. They will force you to wrestle with questions like, God, are you really in control here? God, are you really good here? God, do you see what's happening to me? And when those questions come, we must return to the cross and return to the Word of God that says, Child, yes, I see the injustices. And I do not approve. I will act. I'm in control. This evil will not be forever. My steadfast love is forever. But this evil I will bring to an end. I am sovereign. Both aspects to God's character become comforters in the darkness. They show us that our calamities have boundaries to them. They're not raging out of control. God stands over them. He guides them. He'll bring them to a good end. Even if we can't see the bigger picture, we can trust the Lord is sovereign and that He is just. Scripture makes that much clearer. A second response while God's people wait is repentance. Examine your ways with humility and return to the Lord. Examine your ways with humility and return to the Lord. Now he starts moving there in verse 39. Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Now we know that God commanded punishment for their sins. But what amazes this man is that he's still alive. He's a living man. He deserved much worse, but God spared him and God had mercy on him and on the others in Israel as well. Meaning, there's still time to repent. I have breath, in other words. Why should I be complaining? We deserve this. And that mercy, that kindness of the Lord leads him to repentance in verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. Test. Examine. That involves a diligent search if there be hidden any evil. We get the same language like in Proverbs 2, verse 4, where, where the guy is, you know, when you have to search for wisdom, you have to search after it like, like fine treasures. Just be diligent, right, in this, in this search. To see if there be any hidden evil in you. Not as an end in itself, right? Some people are so introspective that they forget God. Right? It turns into a kind of self-salvation at that point. We're talking here of a healthy introspection that's always done in relationship with God. That's the, I mean, he's the goal, right? Test and examine your ways and return to the Lord. He's the goal. Repentance isn't just feeling guilty. 
It's not just saying sorry. It's not even just saying no to evil desires. Most important to repentance is returning to the Lord Himself. Without turning to the Lord Himself, repentance is incomplete. He mentions lifting the heart and the hands to the Lord. This this attitude of dependence. True repentance will have an outward expression, yes, with the hands, lifting up the hands to the Lord, but not without the inward transformation as well. And that's what this man wants for the people. That's where he's trying to lead them to that inward transformation. And at this point, they haven't repented. And as a result, all they've received is God's wrath, and he can't help but reflect on it again in verse 42. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. This isn't a confession yet. He's simply rehearsing the historical facts of what has occurred. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. Verse 43, you have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Once the Lord had had wrapped His people about like an eagle spreading her wings over her young. But in exile, it says, the Lord wrapped Himself with wrath. He also shut out their prayers, which really amounts to the Lord treating the people the the same way that they treated Him. In Zechariah chapter 7, verse 13, we find this, As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear. In other words, he gave them exactly what they wanted. Israel was also supposed to be a city set on a hill, a light to the nations. Without the Lord, though, they're a pile of human waste. And not only that, panic and pitfall was upon them. Pitfall conveys an animal like fleeing for its life from the hunter, and then it just falls into the trap and flees and falls into the trap. Panic appears in the curses of Deuteronomy 28. Remember, the Lord laid all of this out beforehand for them in the covenant. And you, and you find this panic, this idea of panic in, in Deuteronomy 28. Same language is used, but I'll read verses 66 to 67 of Deuteronomy 28 so you get a better idea of the way he's, he's feeling here. It says, Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day shall be in dread. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And at evening you shall say, if only it were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. This is the panic he's talking about. And that historical experience of God's wrath moves this man to cry out to God for help with with 
with urgency. Verse 49, my eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. This man wrestles with God in prayer. He will not let go until God acts. The man is desperate for the Lord's help. He sees the awful consequences of their sin. He sees their need for forgiveness. And so he weeps and he weeps and he weeps before the Lord. Man, if there was ever a true picture of what repentance looks like, it's here. I mean, think about it. Think about this this picture of repentance here. He acknowledges that that his sins are first and foremost an offense to God. He recognizes that God is right to judge them with the severest of punishment. He acknowledges that true restoration will only come when God acts for him. And only when the heart truly returns to the Lord. Repentance isn't something that ceased under the New Covenant. Repentance actually becomes more, ur- more urgent under the New Covenant. It becomes more urgent with the coming of Jesus. Why is that? Because the kingdom of God is at hand, right? That's what Jesus says. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The coming of Christ meant that God's kingdom was breaking into the present order already and that people must respond to His coming. It's not an option. But even more, the coming of Christ is what makes repentance even possible. That doesn't mean the Old Testament saints couldn't repent. But that their repentance anticipated the freedom from sin that all God's people experience under the new covenant. Christ's death and resurrection, it snapped the power of sin for God's people. His Spirit creates in God's people a new heart that loves God and hates what is evil. The Gospel awakens us to truth so that we turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. We may not always know why dark times linger, but we can hate the sin that causes the darkness, and we can return to the Lord who saves us from it. Now, that's not to say that every pain you experience comes as a result of of a specific sin in your life, right? We know that from Job and the man born blind in John 9. And also, we have to remember that Lamentations is a book that reflects primarily on deserved suffering, not innocent suffering. At the same time, darkness, death, curse, judgment, brokenness, the whole creation groans, ultimately, because of sin. And so when we walk through the darkness, it's right for us to hate sin afresh. 
It's right for us to mourn the tragic consequences of sin that we see. One author put it this way, Lamentations reminds us that underlying our lives is a foundational brokenness connected to the presence of sin in the world. Without sin, there would be no lament. Funerals and laments remind us that sin is serious. So when we experience dark times, let us examine our ways with humility and return to the Lord. At times, the Lord ordains even the severest of trials to rid His people of sin and then drive them back into His arms. That's what He was doing for His people here. One of the amazing things I love about Lamentations is a lot of times you can find the answers to these laments in the prophets elsewhere. Um, and, and we see that even... Um, in Isaiah, where you know, at the, at the first at the in this first part, you notice verse thirty-four says to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth. It's amazing um, that Isaiah actually speaks of God coming to rescue those prisoners, right, and deliver them and set them free. And so this this whole uh, this, this this exile was not going to be permanent. It was something the Lord was using to chastise His people, to get them to return to Him. A third response while waiting. Remember the Lord's past faithfulness to deliver you. Remember the Lord's past faithfulness to deliver you. So right in the middle of of His excruciating pain... He remembers how the Lord had saved him once before. Look at verse 52. I've been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. And you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. That was his plea, right? Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. So this man went through a situation where enemies treated him unjustly. And at the human level, right, they were without cause. He says they flung him into a pit and they cast stones on him. Jeremiah experienced similar treatment. We read about this in Jeremiah 38, where King Zedekiah hands him over and and they let Jeremiah down into a cistern. And it says Jeremiah sank into the mud. And their intent was that he starved to death. Now, whether this is Jeremiah or not, this man had an experience that nearly ended his life. The water closed in over his head. He says, I am lost. Without a miracle, he's finished. But he calls on the Lord's name, do not close your ear. And, And by the way, that's not a prayer that any other person could have heard. 
he said the water had already closed over his head. This is drowning, pleading. This is utter desperation. And that's what the man felt, and that's what Israel feels in exile. And the Lord draws near and says, Do not fear. Don't you love the contrast? I am lost. Do not fear. He's still alive, so obviously the Lord spared him. But consider what those words meant to him in exile. That that word from the Lord, do not fear. You see, God's past deliverance gives him hope. Do not fear means that he can call on the Lord again. The Lord will act. Beloved, this is the pattern throughout Scripture where God brings us into a situation where we cannot save ourselves so that He gets all the glory when He does. And this is the pattern of the faithful as well throughout Scripture. In the face of enemies, in the face of suffering on days when God seems absent, absent and not listening when they're at their wit's end and when they can't see any way out, the faithful recall God's past deliverances. Read the Psalms. Read the laments. Read how, the, how these people are crying out. Right? Even Psalm 22 that you're familiar with. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet I will trust in the Lord. Right? I will hope in the Lord. And he starts rehearsing all of the past faithfulness of the Lord. The saints meditate on these past deliverances. They they preach them to themselves. They rehearse them even back to God Himself. You did this for us. We remember when you acted this way. They, They sing them over one another so they don't forget them. And God's past faithfulness gives them gives their feet a rock to stand on. If God revealed Himself this way before and He never changes then I have hope. So how much more is that kind of hope reassured for us under the new covenant in Christ? I mean, we were desperately lost. We weren't just drowning in a pit. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were on the bottom, lifeless, flatlined. And then the new birth awakened us to a Savior like no other. And we called on that Savior and He delivered us. Where? At the cross and in the resurrection. He came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to give His life as a ransom for many. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He came to save us from the depths of the pit. And His resurrection power will one day raise our dead body from the grave. And you will live forever with Him. But you know what? We don't have to wait until then to have hope that God will hear us. In Jesus, God so reconciled us to Himself that we have this word of assurance, I will never leave you or forsake you. We who are in Christ have His ear all the time. We cry, Abba, because His Spirit is in here. And He calls us sons and daughters. 
He says, cast your anxieties upon the Almighty God because He cares for you. And you might be asking, but how can I be sure of that? The darkness is pretty thick right now. I hurt all the time. He's not treating me rightly. She's not treating me rightly. Life really sucks right now. How do I know He cares? Because of God's past faithfulness to deliver you. Look at the cross. That's how you know. There's a cross where God dealt with our biggest problem, sin. And it's through the cross that He gives us the greatest gift, namely Himself. There, it's where He rescued us from our greatest lostness. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That's where we look, beloved. We're going to look there again in a minute at the Lord's Supper. Before we do, though, let's finish out chapter 3 with one more way to respond when the darkness lingers. Trust in the Lord's future faithfulness to right all wrongs. Trust in the Lord's future faithfulness to right all wrongs. So you remember how the man recalled the Lord's justice back in verses 34 to 36? And how the Lord does not approve injustice? Well, that truth about God's character gives this man a future hope that God's going to deliver him from his enemies and and judge all wrong. In fact, I love the way that verse 58 begins with, you have taken up my cause. You have redeemed my life. God becomes the man's lawyer. And He becomes the man's redeemer. So God's going to argue His case and He will set the man free. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You've seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. Verse 60. You've seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You've heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I'm the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Let's get this straight, because a prayer like this seems pretty harsh. I mean, it kind of reminds us of the imprecatory psalms. But when he prays for God to judge his enemies, it's not a a prayer from self-righteousness. I mean, if you look back just one page to chapter 1, verse 21 to 22, we kind of get a a microcosm of this, this, uh, a smaller picture of what's more largely fleshed out here in chapter 3. But chapter 1, verse 21, he says... All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They're glad that you've done it. 
You've brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you've dealt with me because of all my transgressions. So he knows Israel deserved God's judgment because of their transgressions. He knows that he himself deserved worse than what he got. We saw that in verse 39. And he also knows that his only hope is God's steadfast love and mercy. That was verse 22 and 24. And so this prayer doesn't come from a sense of self-righteousness. Like, I'm better than the nations. It comes from a desire to see God glorify His justice in the saving of His people from their enemies. And notice how comprehensive it is in verse 66. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. So every place under heaven where injustice occurs and prospers, God is going to judge it. He is going to make it right. And so this prayer is a more of a prove yourself glorious in bringing all evildoers to an end. And he trusts God to take up his cause this way. How can he trust God to take up his cause in this way? Because because of God's steadfast love for him, God is for him. He trusts God to take up his cause this way. Do you trust God to take up your cause in this way in the midst of darkness? Do you trust the judge of all the earth to do what is right? Do you trust that God will take up your cause and redeem your life? If you are outside of Jesus, if you're your own Savior and pretending like you do not need Him, God will not take up your cause and redeem your life. You will only experience His wrath when He comes to right all wrongs. But if you trust that Jesus bore God's wrath in your place, And if you now long for Jesus' kingdom to come on heaven, I mean, come on earth as it is in heaven, then, beloved, God will fight for you. He will judge for you. And knowing that God will judge our enemies becomes a comfort to the believer under the new covenant. Knowing that God will right all wrongs becomes a comfort when the darkness lingers, especially when that darkness settles because of injustices done to us. Again, let's consider Jesus here. If there was ever an injustice suffered, it was the injustice committed against Jesus who had done no wrong. But 1 Peter 2.23 says this, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So in that darkness, Jesus, we find Him entrusting Himself to the One who judges justly, namely His Father in heaven. 
And in the darkness, we too can entrust ourselves to our Father in heaven who judges justly. Why can we trust Him? Because we've been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus' cross. God is now for us, and if God is for us, who can be against us? That cross we cherish as our salvation is also our assurance that God is a God of justice. In His future faithfulness, He will right all wrongs. You may be reeling this morning because of betrayal committed against you. You may be angered by sins committed against you. You may be discouraged because of the evil you see prospering. You may be brokenhearted by the moral rebellion of our culture and its leaders who slaughter the innocent and who trample God's good designs for humanity underfoot. And you may be asking questions like, God, where are you? Do you see? And this man in Lamentations reassures us, beloved, the Lord sees. The Lord sees every bit of it. And in His future faithfulness, He will right all wrongs. And you know what that does for us? That gives us the freedom to live peaceably with all. This is how Paul applies it in Romans chapter 12. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We don't have to get even with our enemies. God sees the injustice, and he will right all wrongs. 2 Thessalonians also ends on a prayer for the church, and I'll just end it here for you guys. He talks about how the church is suffering and enduring injustice from their persecutors. And then he gives them, he reassures them of a hope that that one day Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. So wait, right? Wait in your sufferings for that day. And then he gives them this prayer. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every good work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our hope.
Let's proclaim that kingdom hope now as we take the Lord's Supper together. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.